Mad Beef is kept going and growing by generous support from Skater HQ. Bill and the team have been heavily involved in the inline skating community since 1991 and continue to support competitions, skaters and now a podcast. You can visit Skater HQ at one of their Sydney shops or shop online at skaterhq.com.au. Also, big thanks to our Patreon supporters. It really means a lot. If you want to become a patron of the podcast, find us on Patreon and pledge a monthly contribution. Even just $2 a month would be a huge encouragement. Hi, and welcome to Mad Beef, the Australian Rollerblading Podcast. I'm Mikey Lynch, and in this episode, I get to talk with Frank Stoner about how an atheist rollerblades, the benefits of academic overthinking in uh, talking about rollerblading, the proper positioning for a backslide groove, and a whole bunch of other stuff as well. Hope you enjoy. Uh, yeah, I can hear you, man. You can hear me? Yeah. Yeah, I can. All right. Well, let's hope that this uh, recording quality is good enough. Otherwise, we'll have to do it again sometime, eh? Yeah, sure. Hey, Frank, thank you so much for being willing to jump on the podcast with me and chat about a few things. Really appreciate it. Yeah, well, it's my pleasure. Awesome. I just um, It's a very rare thing where I'm from in Australia, Tasmania. It's a small place and... There hasn't been a big crew of skaters down here, but um, a few guys recently have gotten back into it and really worked hard at the community. And uh, about a carload, two carloads came down yesterday, which was awesome. And um, I posted a um, just a, a photo of the skate park we skated at last night, and someone said, "What's the collective noun for rollerblade <laughs> rollerbladers?" Um, and uh, that just got me looking at all like the you know the animals, there's the pride of lions and the whatever else. What would you reckon would be a good um, collective noun for rollerbladers? The, the stupidest but coolest one you can think of. A grind of rollerbladers? What? That's that's a good question. I would uh, you'd have to you know try to map off of some animal that <laughs> would be funny. Like you know it's I mean like what is it a gander of geese? You yeah. know a gander of rollerbladers that could work. <laughs> There was a um, one of them was uh, oh, what was it now? It was it was um, there was like a sleuth of sloths um, was one of the the options I thought was kind of funny, but uh, anyway, there's also a was it, yeah I can I if you let my brain that part of my brain fire up I can think of some there's a let's <laughs> see um, a murder of crows a murder of rollerbladers well there you go. Uh, a parliament, a parliament of owls, <laughs> a parliament of rollerbladers. Yeah, the kaleidoscope of rollerbladers. Yeah, that kaleidoscope could work. Although I don't know, it depends on where you go. But in a lot of places, there's not that much diversity. I yeah, I, kaleidoscope. Yeah, I watched the um, the the uh, the feast uh, competition in Hiroshima recently, and everyone except for Anthony Avello was wearing black, black skinny jeans. Black shirt, long sleeve shirt, black helmet, black. Yeah, well, I mean, that's been the uniform for like 20 years, man. Uh-huh. Um, let's jump into these questions that I sent through. You're happy with those ones to run with them as a shape of what we talk about? Yeah, that's 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 totally fine to start with, I think. Cool, man. All right. Um, so the first one, just to kind of help people locate you, where might people know you from, both in terms of stuff you've spoken and written, but also any sort of videos you, you've popped up in over the years? Uh, okay, so I had, you know, for the guys 
How, real fast, how old are you? Uh, I'm 38. 38, okay. So I'm, I'm about to be 37, so we're pretty close in age. So, yeah, for the guys our age, um, a lot of the, the VGs I was in from about 10 on, uh, yep. or maybe 12 on, I was in a bunch of uh, Jan Welch's videos. I was in all of Lonnie's videos, apart from the new feet videos. I haven't, I haven't been out to see Lonnie in a good few years now, so uh, I haven't done anything with Lonnie recently. Uh, there's a guy from Austin called Jay Gernick, yep. and he put out a bunch of videos that I was in. Um, the Woodward videos, um, and then. That, that, that's that's probably a decent snapshot of the video stuff. And then as far as writing, I wrote articles uh, under a column called Second Place for One Magazine based out of San Diego. Uh, when was that? That's getting on to probably six years ago now. And then for the last couple of years, I've been writing articles for BMAG that are called For Your Consideration. Yeah. And then you've you've been I, I don't know what the origin of of you being on the How to Be Unpopular podcast multiple times. How did that all begin? Because that's that's where I first came across you. I, I think you know to to know the name if you like, and and um, and they're they're great conversations. How did that all begin? Uh, I think I think um, there's a there's I was living in Austin, Texas, which uh, we'll have to come back to for some Aussie American connections. Uh-huh. Uh, maybe later on, but, uh, I was living in, in Austin a couple of years ago and, uh, there was a guy called Cody Sanders, yeah. uh, who's been around a fair bit. And he, he did a podcast because he's just one of these like internet guys, you know, he just, he, he gets around, you know? Uh, and he, after, after hearing his, I said, well, you know, you said it was stupid. I should go on there and say why I think what you said was stupid. And he said, well, you should call him up. And I think, I, I think that's how it went. I think I just, I think I just sent him an email. I sent Joey an email and said I'd be interested in, in talking to him and asked if he'd be interested in doing one. And we did. And I think I think I went on and did one about every 10 podcasts or so for a couple of years there. Yeah. I think I'm probably still on pace with that. About yeah. every 10th visitor is me. Yeah. It's good. Yeah, if people haven't listened to those, they're worth worth checking out. Just good conversations. And that kind of flows into the, my, my, my first big question, Frank, which was, I think both in those conversations and the articles you've written, you've contributed something that I think is kind of fairly unique in terms of rollerblading media I've seen in the sense that you've brought a, I mean, I've, I wrote in the question draft question here, highbrow technical pieces. Um, I was explaining to my 13-year-old son about the one you wrote about standardization of handrails and how that was a thing as a part of the sport. And he kind of went, what? What's that got to do with anything? And, you know, as I unpacked it, he kind of got it. Um, so what do you reckon is the benefit, I mean, apart from for yourself just kind of get getting stuff down on paper, but what do you reckon is the benefit for us as a whole community of getting this kind of more academic, technical, overthinking <laughs> kind of pieces? Yeah, okay. So um, I – let's see. There's a couple of things there. Number, number one, I would say that it's good to point out that it's a benefit for me just because I enjoy doing it Yep. and have – have done for a while. I was, uh, when I first started writing this kind of, these kind of pieces, uh, I was an adjunct faculty member at a Catholic university in, in Austin, Texas. And I had 
when you're when you're adjunct faculty, you know, you you teach per course, you know, so it's not mm-hmm. like you're a full professor where you have lots of responsibilities. Um, and what what I kept finding was that I would have like the whole summer off, or I would have like only two courses to teach in the spring semester. Uh, and so I just kind of had a lot of time on my hands, and it kept me doing the the kind of what you're calling highbrow academic. Uh, just it was useful for me because it it kept me in touch with both rollerblading and with the kind of uh, professional development reading I was having to do all the time. Yeah, yeah. And the kinds of things that I was assigning to my students, you know, I would sometimes write these articles as the example article for to show my students when I was giving them out an assignment Mm. Uh, and so it it, it started somewhat from from that Um, another thing that you said is overthinking and as an academic I wouldn't call it overthinking I understand how people want to call it that or think of it that way but this is like what I do all the time so in my mind it's not overthinking and I don't mean to unnecessarily, you know, take issue with that. Just no, be, no, it's good because, that, because, um, because um, what is the thing? Is, like, overthinking is often being precise. It's often chasing down uh, exact distinctions between ideas and how words are used. That can help us, right? Yeah. Um, well. I definitely think so, and it's definitely a big part of how I kind of interface and understand the world. Um, but as far as as far as what your what your question was getting at is like you know is it making a contribution or what is the yeah. what is the contribution what is the benefit I think is what you said. Yep. Um, so it me, helps you, but how does it help us? That kind of thing. Sorry, what's that? Uh, you like doing it, helps you, but then also, do you reckon it helps us? Yeah. Yeah, well, so as far as as far as the benefit, I think that um, I've I've long been vocal about complaining that you know so many of the articles that I've seen over the last say twenty years or more in rollerblading are just a lot of hype. You know, they say, you know, oh my god, I just went to so and so skate contest and it was amazing and all the dudes were there and it was amazing and. Yeah. Uh, you know, they're going to have it again next year and it's going to be twice as amazing. You know, be sure to come back down here next year because it's going to be amazing. And it's just you'll be amazed. It's just, yeah, you'll be amazed. Oh, my God. You know, and it's just it's I just found it really trite and boring and tired, you know. Well, the other and, kind of article is what wheels do you have? What frame do you have? What thing? You yep. know, just that. <laughs> it, yeah. When, when did you start? Start skating. I've criticized the mushroom blading guys for that because they routinely ask that question. You know, how did you start skating? Um, when they bring on a new guest, and to me, it's just like, oh, we know everybody. It was the same thing. Hmm. They were playing roller hockey. There were some guys in their neighborhood or in their apartment complex who had roller blades. They got some. They started jumping off of curbs, and then they found some guys who were, you know, realer guys than them, and you know, everything started from there. And it's like, you know, there's 20,000 of us left and there isn't many stories that are different from that. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody has the same story to tell. And it's just, you know, to, to write some of these really, uh, academic based pieces, particularly the ones that I wrote for one magazine, um, years ago, um, you know, in my mind, it's just a, a purposely different, uh, w- approach where 
there's there's a lot of people that I knew who were really sick of reading the same shit over and over and over. And, you know, even people who aren't that interested in the academic stuff but still want to read rollerblading articles uh, will read and follow my work because it just because it's different. Yeah. Yep. Um, uh, yeah, I was going to say, like, one of the things I think that sometimes happens in academic kind of sort of more formal lecture settings is that some of that introductory stuff is just done by the, the host, right? And so you can just fast forward to the juicy bits by going, now I guess it's Frank Stoner, he started skating, blah, 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 he's blah, 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 blah. Now hand over to you, Frank, and tell us something more interesting than that. And and then, in a sense, that work's been done for you in 30 seconds by your introduction. You don't need to do that in dialogue format. You can just jump straight into something that's unique. Yeah, I think, I think that that's true. Also, you know, I've kind of been around long enough that a lot of people have like if if you're gonna if you're the kind of person who is interested in reading the kind of stuff that I write, you've probably already heard of me. Yeah. You know. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And fifth one. I I say that with the with the clear reckoning that, um, you know, it's not that many people. You know, we're talking about a couple of hundred people in the world. You know. Yeah. It's not like thousands and thousands upon tens of thousands of people. I mean, yeah. I wrote a big long uh, series a couple of years ago for BMAG talking about what I think the population is of rollerbladers worldwide. And, um, it's pretty small. Yeah. You know, if you really start figuring how many people you'd have to have to get to the giant numbers that some people think exist, uh, you get, you can divide out against the, you know, the population of your town and start to see, okay, you know, if you live in, where do you live? Hobart? Where do yeah, you, that's right. You do live in Hobart, okay. Yeah. Yeah, so what's the population of Hobart? Uh, do you know? A bit under 250,000. Mm. Okay. So this is this is just a made up off the back of the back of the cuff kind of math, but like in towns like that where you've got about 200,000 people or so, in order to have like a million people rollerblading, you would have to predict that there would be like 2 to 500 rollerbladers <laughs> in Hobart. In order for there to be a global population of rollerbladers on a scale of, you know, 1 million or 10 million, stuff like that. And it's just not true. I mean, I mean, you guys, 250,000, you probably, guys probably have, what, half a dozen guys, maybe? Uh, yeah, something like that. Yeah. Which ain't nothing, but, you know, it's a far cry from 500. Indeed. Yeah. So... Yeah, I was going to say um, one of the interesting things yeah, as well. I, I, I might have missed. I might have missed the. Uh, I might have missed the, the point of that question. No, I no, no, it's away. good, man. I was, I was going to feed back on it and say that I think another thing is that you know because of the particular area and thinking about language, you bring interesting. In a sense, you almost kind of up the level on the overthinking that often gets people stuck down in talking about what a savannah is, for example. That you kind of bring in the kind of pedantry that fixates on some narrow definition. You go, well, actually, yeah. you're not being pedantic enough because that's not how language behaves. And actually, if we're going to get technical and then you kind of bring it to a next level, which says that some of these distinctions people get full of rage about, uh, yeah, don't, don't get the fact that actually multiple people can use language in slightly different ways. You know, there's no kind of, um, uh, you know, Academy Francaise for rollerblading that kind of governs these things. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, English, English is a great... Um, language to be to be talking about this in because uh, we have no standard form. You know, 
the Australians don't, the English don't, you know, the South Africans don't, the Americans don't. No one has a standard form. Um, and and even if there were a standard form, like would the Aussies give a if the Americans had a standard form? I don't think so. <laughs> yeah. Us, us saying that we, we declare that it must be sidewalk and not footpath or whatever you guys say for sidewalk. Yeah. Uh, you know, y'all aren't going to care. You're not going to change the way that you talk. I think that the, the most important thing to, to get across the people is to say that, you know, you have to give up on the idea that there's a single right way to do it. And anything that you do is signaling who you are rather than that you're using something correctly. And the best way to communicate in rollerblading is to try to make assumptions about who you're talking to so that you can make kind of code switching changes to accommodate the person that you're having a conversation with so that they'll understand what you mean. Because the whole point of the language is to communicate ideas, not to, you know, um, use language as a mechanism of power where you're, you know, when Daily Bread was around and they would say stuff like, you know, you can't true spin to an alley-oop grind and militate that kind of thinking. You know, they were like the preeminent magazine in the world. And, you know, them forcing people to talk a certain way is an exercise in power for them. Yeah. But now that they're gone and there's no central authority, you know, that kind of thing is just totally out the window, if you ask me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's good. That's good. Which brings us into... Um... Uh, the next question I had, I mean, it kind of touches on an article you wrote called something like what happens when God dies. And I get that's, that's using in a sense God metaphorically, but it does touch in on this question I wanted to unpack with you. Um, every now and then I just mention in passing on the podcast that I'm a Christian that just pops up when it pops up. It's not particularly a religious podcast or whatever. Um, but there are lots of little ways that your religious or your philosophical outlook, outlook at least, you know, you can see kind of resonances or whatever. Um, and I think our first Twitter interaction a year or so ago, you know, you'd noticed there was sort of religious stuff on my tweet, uh, tweets and stuff. And you said, oh, if you ever want to talk about atheism and stuff, let me know. So here we are. Is there any ways that um, uh, atheism uh, affects the way you think about and participate in rollerblading? So, yeah. So I, I think that this, this might be kind of one of the main topics of this conversation. So yeah. let, me, let me actually go back uh, half a paragraph and and ask you a question and yeah. say um, I, I think that that's a well-worded question and one of my first reactions to it was was where I'm about to head is to say do you think that so I, I definitely think that there's there's a way that I can explain that my atheism affects the way that I think and the way that I think affects how that I skate but you know, it's not like I'm trying to atheist my way up to a full cap true fish down a rail. <laughs> you know, it doesn't it doesn't work that way. But you know, we do see, um, and I don't, I don't, I don't. You and I don't know each other that well, so I don't want to say this in any kind of a demeaning way. But you know, um, you see a lot of like athletes and movie stars and stuff like that, like thanking God uh, for their success or for making the touchdown or making the goal you know, or whatever. Um, do you think that, that your Christian views, um, affect your actual skating, not simply just the way that you think about stuff? Does it affect my actual skating? I, I, 
Uh, you know, I, I'm not sure if it affects my the actual behaviour of the tricks I would choose or the way I'd structure the tricks, no. It affects the way I think about, uh, you know, how I f- structure the way I think about my whole life, which includes rollerblading, and it would affect, you know, there'd be sort of ethical things that would, you know, push me to want to treat people a particular way um, uh, while I'm skating with them and around them. Some of those things. Um, uh, but it's not as if, like, you know, uh, I, I grab my backslides like a true Christian ought to. <laughs> <laughs> or, or it's not as if there's somehow, like, um, problematic chaos in overly creative skating that confronts the logos of God's order um, and yeah. so, or, or something like this, you know. So, so, no, so no. I mean, like, and p- p- answers to prayer is um, uh, for a monotheistic religion is a pretty complex thing because on the one hand, if you think that there's only one God, you, you're convinced He can answer your prayers, but because you think there's only one God who's structuring everything, um, uh, then to some extent, you know, there's a degree to which it's your will be done. You know, if you believe in polytheistic gods, you're kind of shouting out to hope that the god of blading will beat the god of nature and the god of gravity and and because of your prayers, giving them power, they'll kind of give you this extra boost to do something, you know. Um, right. So there's a bit more of a competitive dimension to a kind of polytheistic way of looking at prayer, whereas I think thought-through Christians, rather than the kind of folk religion you often see... Um, you know, thought through Christians end up saying, you know, God help me with this. If you choose to answer that prayer, thanks to you, but your will be done because you're juggling the entire complexities of a universe. So, you know, I get yeah. that ordinarily the laws of nature and human bodies in space will mean if I don't learn how to do this the same as anybody, I'm not going to do it. You know, does that, does that begin the conversation yeah, helpfully? Yeah. yeah, that does. That does. And I, I think that you've, you've got a, you've got a, a very, uh, wise and, and studied uh, approach to, 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 to that question. Um, and, it, you know, in, in a lot of ways, I think that, that you and I would find common ground on that kind of a, a thing, whereas, you know, and I'm speculating here, but, and I don't want to speak for you, but, you know, when you see athletes, you know, thanking God for making the touchdown or whatever, it, 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 it just kind of, you know, like, I don't know, it just, it just kind of rubs me the wrong way, because I think, you know, if there were a God and he were running the whole thing, universe like you really think he's got time to like help you make a catch you know <laughs> i mean maybe he does maybe he doesn't i mean if he's god i suppose he can do what he wants but um you know i i um i i've studied a lot of uh of 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 uh of the catholic tradition uh and at one point i was attending um kind of kind of as an observer i guess um but then i dated a girl who was a lutheran and I went to a service with her once and, you know, people like in a regular church, yeah. um, like in a regular church service, you know, people get up and they do the songs at different times of the service and they do, um, you know, prayers and homilies and different kinds of things. And, um, when they had, when I went to the service with her, people would get up and like sing one of the like prayers that are sung, you know, and then when the person was done, like everybody in the church would clap, you know, like clap their hands like it was a sports match. And they were thinking, like, you know, what, what, you know, like yeah. in, in my mind, like if there were, if there, if there were a God, like, 
it seems like piety is the thing rather than like a bunch of, you know, chimpanzees clapping their hands and, you know, shaking the cages with walls, you know, like <laughs> I just, I just don't imagine that God wants to hear you clap. I think that God wants you to be, you know, pious. And so the clapping just was really strange because, you know, much, much pretty much the only experience that I've had with church has been Catholic based. Yeah. And so to have these people clapping just seemed like, like, are we in the circus? Like, this isn't religion. You know, you don't clap in church. What, you know? Yeah, and, yeah. I mean, look, some of that's sort of tribal and, and subcultural. But, I mean, I, I definitely, you know, I've, I've preached in some situations where people will almost just sociologically go, public presentation is finished. The appropriate response is, yeah, again, applause because I don't know any better. And, and, if, and I find, yeah, I do find it really... Uh, kind of confronting and annoying because I go, no, 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 I wasn't, this wasn't a performance. I wasn't doing it for you. I was saying something that I thought you should hear. And so if you appreciate it, listen, you know, <laughs> and and think about it or disagree with it or do it, believe it, you know. But um, clapping suddenly makes it about the me rather than about the message. And you know? it just seems to structure it all topsy-turvy. Yeah, yeah, and from a sort of a sociological point of view, like I think that you're right that it's it's kind of a, uh, a like an automatic, like socially trained kind of uh, auto response, you yeah. know, where like you said, public discourse is ended, clap, and then the next thing happens. Yeah, uh, I think that that's I think that that's probably a good a good instinct, but oh, you know, also it, it it varies widely. Like I think you you were saying that uh, you know, depending on the religion, depending on the church, depending on the the, the culture probably that it's embedded within, you know, like uh, like in in the South, you get a lot of the like black uh, Baptist churches here in the United States, where call and response is like the name of the game. Yeah, you know, and where where people say, you know, can I get a hallelujah? And they give you like hallelujah, you know, like that. Yeah. And so it's a very it's a very different kind of way of celebrating your faith where. You know, in certain cultures, you know, clapping, yelling, shouting, singing, all that kind of boisterous stuff is the point, you know, whereas other religions that, you know, some people might view as, well, just just different, I suppose, um, have a very different take where it's more, you know, kind of quiet and thoughtful and, and that kind of thing. And, you know, there's, there's just a big cultural divide. But for me, it was just bizarre to go in and have like... You know, a Lutheran church, you go on the inside and nothing really looks different, yeah. you know. Yeah. A lot of people talk about the Lutherans being kind of Catholic light or like diet Catholic or something like that. <laughs> um, and so you walk into the place and it doesn't look any different. And then people get in there and start clapping and hollering and you're just thinking like, what the hell, what the hell is going on? You know, it's, it's uh, in communications theory, there's a neat thing called expectancy violations theory. And it deals with a lot of neat stuff like when people stand too close to you or uh, if people don't uh, create the right amount of space inside of an elevator and stuff like that. Uh, or like, you know, when you're on a bus, there's like these sort of inbuilt rules of society. And if you don't follow them, um, you know, everybody sort of breaks out past the past the, you know, autopilot that they were running under. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I think it, it really just did that for me. Yeah. Hey, I'm going back to the touchdown thing, and maybe this is a point of difference, is um, I think the most generous framing of the touchdown, thank you, Jesus, um, leaving aside maybe some of these cultural, again, you know, just responses that you've kind of have been built into things. Um, 
I think the most generous response, which which is a difference, is I think that a, a religious person, if they believe in some kind of personal God, they do see everything, their whole existence, the trees, nature, gravity, uh, anything that they succeed at as ultimately, in this foundational sense, coming from God. In him we live and move and have our being. And so it's a right response of human beings to thank God for the sunset that was going to happen anyway, but it's still in the in the working of God's world, it's it's still our response to it is it's a good thing ultimately from God. And so you thank God when you succeed, you go thank you to God for that, you accept the difficult things in life um, and cast your worries before God. That's like your kind of mode of being. Whereas um, uh, maybe you can comment on this from, you know, if, if there's no ultimately personal or purposeful frame to the universe, um, then your response to beautiful things in nature or fortuitous things in life, you know, you um, nail some squat down rocket fish brain round the kind of hip of a bowl and land it smoothly into the next thing and ultimately you go, thanks to me and me alone kind of thing. Like it's, there's, that's that would be a difference I think at that point where one would go, I did it, I worked for it, I practiced it, I nailed it. Uh, maybe thanks to my parents and thanks to privilege and thanks to other things socially that have got me to this point. Um, do you get what I'm trying to say there? Yeah, yeah, I do, and I, I think that I guess I guess there's a there's a kind of a um, I don't know how to say this. Um, I guess I guess it's 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 about it's about sincerity, you know. And when when I when, when you see somebody who's already, you know, a million dollar footballer who's making a ton of money and he makes the touchdown, like, you know, it, it just think I, I don't know. It just it just seems strange to me. Like what you're describing, in the sense of someone who has this kind of you know pious deep level of appreciation for, you know, thanking the Lord for the sunset, even though it was going to happen anyway. Or recognizing that the Lord somehow played a role in your skating, maybe because it was going to happen anyway, just like the sunset. You know, I think that there's a kind of a difference of sincerity and a perception of authenticity that, to me, marks a difference. Where I think there's, I don't know, there's just some jaded, craven part of me that just says, like, you know, if you're a million dollar footballer, like, I just don't care. You know, like, <laughs> I just. I just don't like you're you're fine anyway, you know. How about how about, you know, instead of God using the the two megabytes of RAM to help that touchdown happen, you know, why don't you ease the suffering or make a better sunset? Like, why don't you do something more like something better for humanity than a you know, damn touchdown. Yeah, yeah, gotcha. Hey, um do you think that there's a um a fundamentalism um, like going back to your article, when God dies, there's a fundamentalist instinct that all people have, in a sense, a desire for order. That you see, uh, you see in you know fundamentalist religion, but that perhaps you also see a manifestation of that in again this kind of like alley oop can't mean travelling backwards; it must mean turning uh, towards the obstacle or, or turning in the opposite direction from the direction to which you're travelling parallel to the the coping or whatever. Um, do you think that there's something of the same instinct there, like an an over an instinct to order, which is almost like a kind of a will to power thing, 
um, that in that sense, um, uh, you know, fundamentalists need to let that petty God die to allow for a much bigger and more mysterious God. And in the same, same kind of way, rollerblading fundamentalists need to let that small God of order die to embrace reality as, and possibility. Yeah, so this this is this is uh, this is really interesting because I feel like rollerblading, uh, and this is this is this is a strange time to be talking about this because um, I wrote this article for BMAG and it just sort of got lost in the paperwork and it wasn't published until like a week ago, um, and it was called "Language as Sandbox in Rollerblading." Yep, and the idea is. Um, the idea there is that um, there's have – you, have you heard of sandboxing? Does that make sense to you? Have you ever heard that term? I've heard it like in relationship to like kind of computer programming and stuff where you'll sort of set up a trial site or a beta version or something to play around with to see what works and what doesn't work before you yeah, – Yeah, absolutely. And that's, that's exactly where I start in the article. And um, so what, what I would say about that is that um, – you know, I think that what what we see if we look across the culture of rollerblading, the sort of global culture, is that uh, it's it's okay for for the skating to exist in that kind of sandbox where we know that people try different tricks, um, they sort of come and go. Lately, you've seen you know some guys doing this sort of double negative. Uh, grind on a square rail where they have their feet close together. You know what I mean? <laughs> I know exactly what you mean. Double yeah. negative Machio kind of a thing. But uh... like, it's a really bizarre looking, I mean, talk about a, a, like a, a, a Christian, you know, reference. Like it's as if your feet are nailed together to the cross uh... where it's an awkward stance. Like it doesn't look, it doesn't look loose, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think that people will do it because it's fun. Uh, but, I have a really hard time imagining that that trick will ever get to a kind of a canonical status the way that topsail, backside royale, you know, top acid, unity, kind grind, Mizu, these things yeah. uh, have become really central and really canonical. Um, but so, so we kind of, we kind of all understand that this sort of the, the, the dichotomy that you're talking about between chaos and order, right. Yeah. Is yeah. that, the sandbox, you know, we're okay with the sandbox in terms of the actual skating, but what we see, you know, the sort of evidence suggests is that we're not okay with language existing in the sandbox, that everybody has this, like you said, kind of fundamentalist attitude that, you know, you can't true spin to alley-oop, or it has to be Savannah, it can't be alley-oop unity, and, you know, it's, it's a strange thing that, you know, you, you would predict parody, um... Where, where the two things are equal, if, if we're a culture that enjoys this kind of experimental, embrace the chaos kind of thing with skate however you want, we'll see what works and what doesn't, and then we'll keep what's good and we'll abandon what's bad. Um, but you don't see that with, with, uh, with the, the language. You know, people get really fundamentalist about the language. Uh, and that's, that's something that's perplexing to me, and I don't really know... Um, I don't really have a good explanation at this point for why we are that way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's yeah. a it's an interesting instinct. Whatever's going on there. Yeah, I suppose we all know what it's like when someone does say something that does great. You know, and there are some 
uses of language that are fine and there are some that strike us as ugly and creates this disgust response. And I suppose there's something in that where there are some, you know, even if they're penciled in rules, there are probably things you hate hearing people say and it just, just irks you when you hear it. Um, you know, it drives me bonkers when people use beg the question to me. That makes me want to ask a question. And I know that's the way it means now, and I get that, but it still it just strikes me as ugly. And I suppose there are some things like that where people go on some almost visceral level. They just go, when you use that word, it's just ugly. Or when you do that particularly, to me, dorky-looking mushroom blading thing, it just looks just looks stupid sort of thing. And there's, it's, uh, you know, it's it's pretty pretty raw kind of reaction. Yeah. 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 Well, go ahead. No, no, no. I was just filling the filling the void. <laughs> oh, sure. Okay. Well, so um, that's um, that's something that uh, I I have kind of I've kind of gotten over that. I still I, I will still admit to a couple of things um, that kind of stick in my ear like a hot iron, you know. Um, and interestingly, begging the question, the misuse of begging the question is one of them, you know, the, the, to say causes you to ask the following question, like, yeah. no, no, go to school. doesn't mm-hmm. mean that it's something totally different. Yeah. You know, it's, it's about, oh, just, oh, you know, yeah. oh my God. Um, there are a couple of others that kind of stick in my head. Um, like, um, in, in the business and tech world here in the, in the U S um, people use the word functionality. Yeah. I don't know if that's common where you're at Yeah, yeah, yeah. to mean like, Oh, there's going to be a whole bunch of new functionality on the new software and it's going to let us do this, this, and this, and we couldn't do that stuff before. And so, you know, we're really optimistic about this software's new functionality to, uh, you know, help us do stuff we couldn't do before. And again, that's one of those things that just, it just sticks in my ear like a hot iron because, under no circumstance does the word functionality mean something different from the word function. <laughs> and it's one of these things that just gets, it just gets used over and over and over. And it, it, it says to me, like when I'm in a meeting back when I used to work at a big corporate place that the people who are talking aren't thinking. And so if they're not thinking then I don't need to listen. So then I just stare at the window. It's like that um, great little thing by George Orwell, the politics in the English language, where he, you know, talks about how there's that kind of bureaucratic speak that favours the passive and favours yeah. yeah these pompous sounding non-Germanic rooted words that you know, um, so you can have speak whole sentences that seem to not have a subject and um, you know yeah but, yeah, yeah uh, just railing against the not unconstruction like. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Said so instead of saying like police, them. police shot black guy, you say, um, you know, non-Caucasian male was encountered by uh, officials functioning in a non-authorized capacity. Who, uh, you know, this kind of thing. It's go. Well, it's almost like you're dodging saying what you need to say. Um, well, yeah, and yeah, he's particularly, I think, in that essay, railing against the uh, the not unconstruction, so mm-hmm. a not unkind. <laughs> uh, that's cruel you know, that's mean a not kind description to say it was a kind description yeah yeah um so i read that as a as an undergrad and it sounds like you did too yeah um, the the there's there's a big impulse 
So I don't have I don't have any degrees in English. Uh, I have a degree, an undergraduate degree in uh, classical rhetoric, and I have uh, a master's degree in rhetoric, and I have a second master's degree in cognitive linguistics. And we were separate from the English department in most cases, and it is true in most universities. Um, some places kind of parse out rhetoric to um, the, the speech and communication department or, um, you know, graphic design in some ways with like, you know, graphic rhetoric and stuff like that, uh, or media rhetoric or calm or philosophy uh, or English departments sometimes. And then some places actually have rhetoric departments. Uh, I was fortunate enough to attend schools that had rhetoric departments. And so one of the things that, that you see is that, um, you know, there's this kind of gotcha mentality about a lot of English majors uh, wanting to catch you out on misusing a comma, you know, or, oh, you made a misspelling or something like that. And it's like, it's just really, it's really stupid. You know, it's just, it's, it, it benefits no one. And in, in this country, at least, you know, there's this, um, there's this kind of air of superiority where, you know, the, the English majors want to feel like they're, they're better because they can speak and write and communicate better than, you know, the engineering majors or the science majors or whatever. And, you know, they need something to kind of shore up their ego because they're all going to graduate and get a $30,000 a year job after this. And the engineers are going to graduate and get a $100,000 a year job after this. Yeah. So there's a, a need to kind of shore up the ego where you can feel superior in some way. Not necessarily you, obviously, but yeah. uh, just yeah. these, this, you know, the, the sort of the royal you, I guess. Hmm. Um, and I, I had some inkling toward that. And when you read stuff like Orwell's Politics in the English Language, you get a lot of that, um, where you want to feel like you're in the in club because you know not to use this tired, worn out language. Um, but I really had to le let all that stuff go. Um, when I kept, you know, coming across research problems that I couldn't solve with the tools available to me in rhetoric. And so then, um, I sort of changed gears and went and did cognitive linguistics. And so when I did that, it, it stops being about what's good writing, what's good communication. And the question becomes, how do brains do this? Yeah. And so you really quit caring, or I really quit caring, I should say, <laughs> that, that. You know, people people in the south of the United States will say stuff like "ain't got no," and for some people that just rings in their ears like a like a siren. Um, but in in cognitive linguistics, you think, okay, we have these formalistic rules for language, and if it turns out that you can communicate and that brains can still understand other brains, uh, even violating these these rules that we thought to be sacred, then the rules must not matter. Yeah, it's amazing. So, I I have I have really um, graduate school. I've said this before. Graduate school was really good for me because I think that I had a lot of kind of um, um, that same kind of um, will to power or what was the expression that you had yeah, before yeah, that, that was, was parallel it. to that? Yeah, yeah, I think that was it. Like in instinct for something. Yeah, I can't remember now. <laughs> okay. 
but sort of a, a will to power kind of a thing. Yeah. And, you know, graduate school kind of helped me to let go of that. And I think that there's, there's something to be said for just kind of embracing the chaos, yeah. you know? Um, and it, so, so and the one other thing that I want to, that I want to touch on is that to go back to where this question started about, uh, you know, embracing the chaos or having this kind of, you know, belief in, in, in order. Um, I feel like a lot of the older guys, the, the guys who were rollerblading in the early 1990s, um, were really after the kind of exploration, yep. you know, aspect of rollerblading. And then, you know, more and more, say by the end of the 1990s and the early 2000s, you start to get a really formulaic kind of skating where you can predict any section is going to be 90% grinds. It's going to have maybe a weird wall ride and it's definitely going to have an obligatory 540. Um, and it, everything had become very formulaic like that, where there's a kind of a mandated order on things. Yeah. And as a matter of fact, you're, I guess you're now former countryman. There's a Australian guy from, uh, Brisbane who's called Jake Barnes, Jacob Barnes. I don't know him. No, afraid not. When he lived in Australia, he was called Lindsay Barnes. Okay. Um, but through, through a complicated set of things, he, he just, he changed his name when he became a citizen of this country. Um, mainly, mainly, I think he was sort of looking for a new beginning and also, uh, Lindsay is an uncommon name for a man and he just didn't want to deal with that. Yeah. You know, sort of starting his life over, but, uh, he, he really, he really comes from the camp that says, um, you know, there's so many things that you can do with your body. And there's some different things that you can do if you put wheels on your feet. So what's possible if you've got these wheels attached to you? Uh, and he has that very open kind of embrace the chaos. We'll, you know, we'll, you know, sandbox kind of mentality. Yeah. Whereas um, the, the sort of middle time frame of rollerblading doesn't really embrace that at all. But I think that we are starting to see that come back a little bit. And I tend to think mainly it's because either people aren't aren't good enough to keep doing crazy tricks or they don't have the desire any longer to do big crazy tricks or, or for any other reason, they just don't want to, um, or, or, or a totally different alternative would be that they're just bored. You know? well, well, I mean, I found this, I mean, I loved my watch with my daughter, the, um, winter Olympic snowboarding, both the women's and the men's. And, um, I mean, it's great to watch, but it's amazing how the overly structured scoring actually makes on one level for quite boring runs because basically in the end, it really is a spin to win thing where you just go, it's amplitude and style and difficulty, which basically just means Sean White trying to do as many rotations in as, you know, inverted a cork as possible um, in, in a single run. And it's incredible what he can do. But there's nothing along the whatever the equivalent of a coping is in a snowboard half pipe. There's no hand tricks. There's no like you end up getting something that's far less interesting, all things considered, than watching a bunch of guys sessioning with a snowboard and mucking around. Like it ends up being a very even less creative than gymnastics, really, because at least in gymnastics they have to do a little bit of dancing and a few other <laughs> bits and pieces in between. Whereas right. this is just down the thing, 1080, 900, 1080, 12, you know, and it's just, it's just that, you know? Yeah. 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 I, 
I, I agree. I think it's it's nice though that those activities have done such a good job to uh, produce a, a better a better equilibrium between the men, the male, the you know the, the men and the women. Yeah. You know where you look to uh, rollerblading, and I've said this in a hundred places in a hundred different ways, but um, you know we have a really terrific group of of uh, female rollerbladers, and they're terrific. But you know at best they're what five, may, maybe ten percent at the most ever of the population where it's totally a boys club. Yeah. And if like you, you're looking at something like rollerblading and thinking, God, would I want my daughter to be a rollerblader with all these assholes around? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And not from an, un, an unnecessarily, you know, patri patriarchal, you know, position, just that, is it even that friendly to women? You know? Yeah. I've, I've had my doubts a lot. Yeah. 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 Hey man, I'm I'm getting tight on time, so let me throw a couple of these last couple of questions your way before we um, run out of time, okay? Okay, sure, yeah. So um, uh, I don't know if you've got anything to comment on these. So the first one was, I think, on one of the mushroom blading thingos, uh, you mentioned in passing views around both aluminium frames, or as you guys would say, aluminium frames, and uh -huh, yeah. rocket aggressive setups. Is, am I right that on both of these things? You think? that's the way to go or at least that's really worth considering and if so why well, okay yeah so I can I can feel these two pretty quickly um, uh, aluminum frames make a great deal of sense to me because um, I've never liked like ledges you know ledges concrete ledges marble ledges pool coping ledges uh, have never been my thing I've skated them you know for thousands of hours of my life and I just don't like it and so even, you know, 20 years ago when I was really good, I skated skate park and handrails and nothing else. I like giant handrails and I like coping. And I also like jump boxes and stuff like that. But, you know, once once you, you know, doing a 540 over a jump box or a 360 or an anything over a jump box doesn't really make much difference. Um, I do think, though, that there are a lot of benefits uh, particularly for somebody with a large foot, I wear an 11 and a half US, which is not giant, not like some poor asshole with a size 15, uh, which it's really hard to be a rollerblader if your foot's that big. Um, and you know, this, you get this kind of bell curve distribution where most rollerbladers wear a nine US, uh, and a very small minority wear like a six and a probably even smaller minority wear like a 14 or 15 size, you know, skate. Yeah. Um, but one of the advantages of an aluminum frame or an aluminium frame for y'all uh, is that um, it helps stiffen the boot. And if you've got a really big skate, the plastic just isn't that rigid. Yeah. And so if you, like me, skate a shadow uh, skate, you need something else to help the skate stay rigid. And yeah. that plays a role in the rockering setup that I skate on, uh, which is about a 56 millimeter wheel for the two and three positions and a 54 millimeter wheel for the one and four positions. So the inside wheels are actually physically bigger, uh, especially when they're brand new. Um, <clears throat> and uh, when you're getting down to a really precise rocker, like a mill or a half a mill, um, if it's not, if the frame itself isn't rigid, it's just going to bend. And so you're not going to get the benefit that the rocker is trying to accomplish in the first place. Um, I think that. The, the ideas that we've finally come to with the sort of Celtic-style undercarriage um, uh, uh, guard around the wheels, around the wheels two and three, 
um, allows to pretty much ride flat or ride rockered and skate pretty much whatever you want, however you want, without a great threat of wheel bite. Yeah. Um, and I just think that there's a tremendous amount more control on offer uh, with a rockered setup than with a flat setup or especially with an anti-rocker or a freestyle setup. In some ways, um, am I right in saying a rockered setup basically accelerates what you'll end up getting after skating a flat setup for a while anyway? Like you skate a flat setup and it will start to kind of naturally kind of wear so that all four aren't down when you just got your... So in a sense, yeah, sort of. I've tried to get people to explain the the natural rocker that comes on the wizard frames to me, and it's supposed to mimic what you just described. But um, I, I, my skates aren't, for instance, set up that way. Mine is a very people call it a banana rocker. Yeah, uh, the way that I skate, where it's where it's the big wheels in the middle, the small wheels on the outside, um, and that lets you swivel your feet and skate backwards really well and really gracefully. And I like that kind of control. I really, really hate the metaphor because I really despise making connections to skateboarding that we don't need to. But in my mind, it's it's pretty parallel with uh, riding loose trucks on a skateboard, yep. where you know you're 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 putting the onus on yourself to control what's going on. Uh, and if you can do it well, the benefits pay out dividends. Uh, whereas if you can't do it well, you're probably just going to fall down and have a bad time. Very good. And my other quick question before we finish up, man, uh, is uh, you've made comments as well, I think, on previous podcasts about the change in backslide plates and angles and how that has affected style. Um, I, I came left rollerblading with a knee injury in like 95, 96. And so I, I, I kind of didn't really see Royale's happening, you know, and so I came back and suddenly there's this whole vocabulary of tricks I didn't know about. Um, but uh, I was wondering if you could help us point out to you know what exactly that distinction you're noticing is, uh, and a good kind of example of the before and after. Because it seems to me as I've gone back, some of the very early video grooves when Royals were beginning, the style is quite wooden, right? Where the back leg is kind of cocked into a Royale position, and the front leg is almost stick straight. Do you know that kind of form that I'm describing there? And that doesn't yeah. look great. But I'm assuming you're talking about something. After that, but before the modern backslide plate, perhaps. Do you want to unpack this one for us? Yeah, okay. So um, the old skates, let's say, uh, you know, the, the Rossi's, um, you know, Majestic 12, the Rossi's that predated the, the H-Block skates, you know, so like the Rossi's Rome and what were the other ones, like the Rossi's Mexico with the yellow cuffs yep. that Cesar used to ride with the um, – they became the 62 Impala, but yeah. he liked the, the – I'm pretty sure it was the Rosas Mexico uh, that had that big, tall, yellow cuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, Cesar liked those, and so he was just getting the, the aluminum frames bolted onto there. Uh, and then they eventually made him that 62 Impala to skate on. Um, but that original big yellow cuff thing from way, way back in the day um, was part of that original line of Rosas skates. Um and, well, let's see. Okay, so the, 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 the Rossi style, the rollerblade style, up through, like, Oxygen, the Argon skates that came out yep. um, in the, well, that have been about 96. Um, all of those skates had a little, a little sort of thin back 
where the heel was, not where the heel plate was, because at that time there was no heel plate. Yeah. Um, and so to do a Royale, you kind of had to force your foot at a inward or pigeon-toed kind of angle. Uh, and a lot of the early tricks, like you were saying, you know, had this pretty aggressive angle on the back foot, and then the right foot was you know, for a left foot Royale. The front foot was just kind of just stuck out there and locked, you know, really hard. And, you know, that was that was at the very beginning where people were just learning how to do it, you know. But if you look at, like, even as, as well, as late, I guess, for what we're saying, as, like, VG3, you've got Randy Spicer and a lot of other guys who had really honed in on what the Royale was going to be. Yeah. Uh, and that includes the, the, the Royaling foot, the backsliding foot, pitched inward at roughly 38 degrees. Um, and that that angle makes a great deal of sense for a lot of the other tricks that utilize that foot position. So to give, to give an example, um, I'm sitting in a chair right now, and I've got both feet flat on the ground. And if I kind of put my feet into a topside acid stance, right, where I've got my left foot as my sole foot, yeah. and I've got my right foot out front, doing kind of a backslide, if you can call it that, yeah, right? Yeah. And that that front foot should point forward a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm doubtful that anybody who sits there and looks at their feet doing this right now will actually force that front foot to 90 degrees. Pushing the heel out like that, yeah. Like forcing your heel like you're trying to, you know, stuff your shoe into a – like you're – push your heel down into a boot that doesn't fit, you know, or something like that. Yeah. Like yeah. you wouldn't naturally do that. Uh, and so the problem is that modern skates locate the Royale groove at precisely 90 degrees um, or basically straight in line with the, with the frame groove so that if you were doing a Royale, it would be no different than if you were just standing with your feet totally flat on the ground, parallel to each other, and just leaned over. Yeah. Um, and so the, the problem with that design that everybody seems to have gone to, um, and this started pretty much with the uh, John Elliott backslide plates that came out on John's uh, first Razor's skates, the Elliott 1 and then the Elliott 2s had those plates. And then pretty much every cult skate since then, uh, and Super Flat and everything else has had that new Royale groove that's um, perfectly in line with the frame groove. And the, the problem that I have with this is that it makes it easier for people to do Royales who can't Royale. Or if you're only trying to do Royale, then that's a decent way to do it. The problem is that a lot of people aren't naturally pigeon-toed. And so forcing people to have this 38-degree inward angle um, caused problems for some people. Um, and so what we have instead is this, this sort of badly located Royale groove where in my mind, the groove needs to be further back towards the heel and should look kind of like an upside down Nike swoosh. You know what I mean? Yeah. Kind of pointing back towards the heel. And the reason that that's good in my mind to have, to have what I'm talking about is the Nike swoosh upside down Nike swoosh back towards the heel kind of Royale groove. Uh, is that it preserves a uniformity uh, for all Royale-based tricks. So in the topside acid example that I was giving a second ago, the position that your front foot is in when you're doing that top acid stance ought to be pretty much the same uh, angle 
if you were doing a Royale. Yeah, okay. And the problem that I see is that if you if you put the if you put the groove totally perpendicular, when you do non-Royale tricks like a top acid, for instance, um, there's no groove for your foot to lock into. So then it's it's more unstable because your front foot isn't actually locked on. It's just kind of dragging out front like a snowplow. Yeah. Um, I also think that those uh, those nine what I'm calling ninety degree Royale grooves force a really awkward stance onto a lot of unities where um, I have, I'm a big fan of uh, uh, like if I'm sitting in an airport or a bus station or a train station, uh, looking around at the people waiting and yeah. seeing whether their feet are making rollerblading stances. <laughs> That's so good. What a game. Yeah. You know, you'll see people doing unity and porn star and <laughs> you'll even see strange ones like top acid. And occasionally you'll see people who are very flexible doing, what some people call a citric acid, where you wrap the acid foot round back of the soul grind. Yeah. You know, people stand in all kinds of crazy ways. And I, I one time I was in, in Europe and I was in this train station. There was this huge fat man, probably four or 500 pounds. And he was sitting there and he had his feet in such a perfect Farfanugan stance <laughs> that like, it was just hysterical because he's a giant man. Um, and yet he's doing like the most elegant front Nugan stance you can ever imagine. Yeah. And I just found it to be totally hilarious. Um, but so my point is, if you if you put your feet into a unity stance, um, your toes will kind of point out from each other. Yeah, and that'll actually facilitate like, well, getting lower as well, won't it? Uh, yeah, a little bit. You, but, but I think that you should kind of cross. Your feet will kind of naturally cross at the ankles. Mm. But if you're forcing your feet to be perpendicular to the railing, if you're grinding a rail, doing a unity on a, on a rail, um, to get your feet to be totally straight, you know, and perpendicular to the railing, you kind of have to cross either at the upper shin or, or even like at the knees where the one, the one knee sort of nests into the crook of the other knee. Yeah. It just winds up making a really, really unstable and awkward looking unity. Yeah. And, you know, those skate manufacturers are, are basically forcing this on anybody who doesn't sit there with a file and change their Royale groove. And so in the last, say, 15 years, you really, really see a difference in what a Unity looks like and what a Royale looks like. Um, and I would argue from an aesthetic point of view that they look worse, but I would also argue from a practical point of view that the old way of doing certain of these tricks was more stable than the new way. So it's not just about me being an old codger and wishing things were back how they were when I was a kid. I really think that the tricks are less stable now than they were before. And one of the reasons that I could point to that I could actually provide evidence for that people aren't doing tricks that are as big nowadays is partly because the tricks are less stable than they used to be. Mm. I get that there's a lot of cultural things going on where, you know, um, that's not the only reason why people aren't doing 50 stair handrails anymore, but that's, that's at least something that you could point to as evidence, which, you know, given my background has certain value. That's really good, man. Thank you for unpacking that. I do have to go, Savvy. I'd happily talk for a lot longer, but I really appreciated your time, Frank. And, um, who knows, maybe we'll get to do it again sometime or even skate in person. Who knows? Yeah, I would, I would like to make my way down to that part of the world before the end. So, uh, it would be nice to stay in touch. 
Yeah. And if you want to talk more, I'd be happy to do it again sometime. Thanks heaps, man. Appreciate it. You have a great afternoon. Okay. Thanks so much, Mikey. You too, man. Take care. See ya. Mad Beef Rollerblading Podcast is produced by Mikey Lynch, theme music by Edifice Architect. You can subscribe to us on SoundCloud, iTunes and Stitcher and get in touch with us on our Facebook page. Mad Beef is supported by Skater HQ. You can find them online at skaterhq.com.au. We are also supported by our growing number of Patreon patrons. To support the podcast, find us on Patreon. Even just $2 a month, every little bit helps.